You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. You notice the words of that song said, uh, how can I keep from singing, not how can I keep from sinning? And I think it's an important distinction. Uh, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, so often we think that the sermon is about how can I keep from sinning. And I think when we know the Savior who gives the sermon, we have a reason to sing. And that makes all the difference in the world when we think about sin. Johann Sebastian Bach, the German composer, as you may have heard, used to pen at the bottom of his uh, music scores these three Latin words, soli, uh, Deo gratia, uh, only to God the glory. That was his motivation. That's why he wrote that music. Jesus Christ was his inspiration. And as we're reading the Sermon on the Mount together, and we're moving from chapter 5 in the sermon to chapter 6 in the sermon, we see our Savior moving from a discussion of character to a discussion of motivation. Jesus moves from the what to the why. In verses 1 through 18 here, Jesus takes three noble acts. And I don't think this is his list per se. He takes three acts that were central. They were pillars of Jewish piety in the first century. Almsgiving, giving money. Prayer, speaking to God. Fasting, a form of repentance. These were noble acts. And, and Jesus takes them because his hearers would see them as noble acts. And he discusses them, but not so much to commend them as much as to challenge our motivation for engaging them. He asks us, in effect, why do you do these things? And in his answer to that question, he persistently uses a phrase. We'll see it in a minute. Your father who is in secret... It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus talks about secrets. He talks about our secrets. There's something about secrets. They can either imprison us and make us feel very, very alone in darkness, or they can free us. They can release us and renew us. Your secrets are your life. Think about that statement, whether you believe it's true. And let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Uh, you find on page 787 if you're looking at the Pew Bible. And if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together. This is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. 
Well, secrets have been in the news this week. Maybe you noticed Jason Collins, the first openly gay player in the NBA, released his secret. Some, of course, celebrated. Some, of course, cringed. But for Jason, the relief and the freedom that he felt was manifest to us all. He said in his uh, article in Sports Illustrated, no one wants to live in fear. I've always been scared of saying the wrong thing. I don't sleep well. I never have. But each time I tell another person his secret, I feel stronger and sleep a little more soundly. It takes an enormous amount of energy to guard such a big secret. I've endured years of misery and gone to enormous lengths to live a lie. I was certain that my world would fall apart if anyone knew. That's the nature of a secret. We wouldn't keep it secret if we didn't think that the world around us couldn't handle it, couldn't handle us. And the secret then becomes our world, a world that we have to hold together lest it would fall apart. There's no freedom in that. Rather, it's a prison for us. Now, I've got my secrets, too. And uh, if I'm be honest with you, I would say one of my biggest secrets these days is that I don't believe I have what it takes to be the pastor of University of Presbyterian Church. And one of my secret convictions is that, you'll, that, that I just, I'm not adequate. I, I feel this every time I sit down for a cup of coffee with you, every time I lead a meeting and a committee, every time I, 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 I dare to put together a sermon to stand up here before you on Sunday morning. And I'm really afraid that you're going to discover one day that I'm just a fraud. I mean, this, and you know, you laugh, and I'll tell you, this is, it's hard for me to live with that, that secret. Many of us live with secrets like this. Uh, I've learned recently that I'm not alone, and uh, there's actually a name for this. It's called the imposter syndrome. Psychologist Judith Beck describes it as kind of a self-doubt. She says it's the sense that you don't fully know what you're doing. And that you fooled other people into believing that you're more competent and talented than you really are. The imposter syndrome. And so many of us feel it. Particularly when we're doing well in life. She describes uh, three people. There's a, there's a Dr. A who's a surgeon. And he knows himself to be an adequate servant, surgeon. But he does not believe that he's the rock star surgeon that everybody else says he is. And this affects his mood. She describes a, a, a mis... A Ms. A, a B, who is a, an investment banker. And, and she doesn't believe she's quite all she's cracked up to be either. And so she begins to avoid asking questions or getting help lest she be exposed as a fraud. She speaks about a Mr. C, who's an attorney, who hides his self-doubt behind a wall of bluster. And if you get too close to him, he begins to get belligerent. Whether your secret would be like mine or like Jason Collins, I don't know, but I know this. We all have secrets, all of us. One of my definitions of a friend is someone who holds your secret. And I've had the great privilege over the years of being friends to so many, so many people. And I, I, I can't say I've heard it all, but I feel like I've heard the whole range of secrets that we tend to hold. I've heard people say to me, you know, I'm not happy George, I, I don't really like my job. Or my spouse is hurting me. Or I've had an abortion. Or I'm failing in school. 
or I'm addicted to pornography, or I don't know why nobody accepts this as a metaphysical or a physical or a fact of life for some of us, but I have depression and I'm so ashamed. Or George, I've been raped. George, I'm having an affair. George, I I cheated on the exam. Or George, I've murdered someone. I've heard all of these things. And it's not about the people that are out there. I'm talking about us in here. I want to ask you to think about this for a moment. What secret did you bring to church with you this morning? See, the trouble is that our secrets begin to shape our lives. They become our life. This is an unhelpful motivation as we, like Jason Collins, do everything we can to protect and to hide and to mitigate the effects. Jesus addresses this. Jesus understands this. He uses a word here in verse 2, the word hypocrite. Now, I want to stop you just for a second as you hear that word because it didn't mean originally what it means today in our culture. I want to ask you to reflect for just a second on this word hypocrite because when we hear it, we tend to think it's about someone who's doing something bad. But remember, Jesus uses this word three times in these 18 verses, and he's talking about people who do things that are good. He's not talking about bad people. He's talking about the best of the best in his day, the people who do noble acts. When we think of the word hypocrite, we think of somebody who's holding other people to a higher standard, you know. But these people here, there's nothing that indicates that they're judgmental people or critical people. So what does Jesus mean when he calls them hypocrites? Well, the the Greek word that's translated hypocrite, it's actually just transliterated. Hippocrites is the Greek word, and it comes from uh, the theater in classical Greece. It was the simple word for the actors in the drama. The people on the stage were hypocrites. They were actors playing a role, or as they often did, wearing a mask, or certainly performing for an audience. Now, when we see this Definition of hypocrite, I think you're like me, and I say, yeah, I absolutely am a hypocrite, because I, I do that. I perform for an audience in life. I hide myself behind a mask, or I play a role with, with you, even with the people that are closest to me. It's interesting, Jason Collins in his Sports Illustrated article, he uses the exact same language as Jesus does. He talked about having a straight mask, or, or living a double life. In his own words, he says, by its nature, my double life has kept me from getting close to any of my teammates. And he's talking about his whole career as a basketball player. Jesus is saying, as he uses this word, you don't need to live this way. There's, there's something I'm bringing into your life that will open up to you a new possibility such that you can take off the mask, you can leave the audience beside, you can be freed from your double life, and you can live an absolutely authentic life. This is what Jesus wants for his new community as he speaks it to life through this Sermon on the Mount. They have this performance mentality. When they give and when they pray and when they fast, it's so important to them that everybody see them It's so important that nobody sees the real them. See the pious them, but not the real them. 
And Jesus says, your mask is not your life. There's something so much more to you than anybody else can see. And I'm the one who sees it. Notice he says, your father who sees in secret. Your father who sees in secret. He repeats this, verse 4, verse 6, verse 18. This is the refrain. This is the chorus to the song. Your father who sees in secret. Or as it morphs a little bit, your father who is in secret sees. Now there are two parts to this. first part is your father and this is a word that speaks of absolute, unconditional love. A father. Now, I know many of us had fathers who didn't learn absolute, unconditional love from our fathers. I would suggest that none of us did. To the extent you think there's just an enormous, egregious gap because you've been hurt by your father between the, the father that God is described as here and your own father, then you just need to think about the opposite of what you experienced. And I know that's a, a painful thing and a hard thing to do, but you've got to understand Jesus is talking about perfect love. A father who really is a father, maybe not like the father that you are or that you had. This is a father that Jesus describes undoubtedly as he gives this sermon with the word Abba. He's preaching most likely in Aramaic. It's been translated by Matthew into Greek. But the word Abba, the Aramaic word, is the, is the intimate, most intimate, affectionate name for father. It's the name that a child would use for her father. She climbs up into his lap. Daddy is the best translation. Your father is the one who loves you unconditionally and you do not need to hide before your daddy in heaven. You can crawl up into his lap and know you've been fully accepted by him. Even if nobody else accepts you, he does. The other part to this is the in secret part. Your father who is in secret. Now, if God sees us in secret, he sees us absolutely who we are. And this speaks of perfect freedom. The freedom to take off the mask and just be who we really are, to be authentic. To me, I think this phrase, in secret, speaks of the cross. The cross where the holiness of God is hidden in the shame and curse of the cross. For on the cross, God in the person of the Son has taken on all of the shame of our darkest secrets there to unmask evil, to unmask injustice, to unmask the brokenness of this world and to absorb it in his own being so that we can be set free. You don't need a mask anymore. After the cross of Jesus Christ, now we're free. We can confess our sins. We don't have to hide them. So remember, as we go through this uh, series, we want to be attentive not just to asking what does the sermon say, but more importantly, who is the Savior behind the sermon? And here's our answer this morning. The Savior is the one who says, I know all about you and love you just the same. I know all about you and love you all the more. See, your secrets may keep you from God, but they will never keep God from you. He approves of you. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ when he looks at you. He does not see your failure or brokenness. Tom Smale writes in The Forgotten Father, to be a Christian is to believe that it is the Father who defines our identity. And it is to be believed against all inner and outer accusations to the contrary when he says to us, this son of mine, that's you, or this daughter of mine, 
That's you. The Apostle Paul speaks to those who, through faith in Jesus Christ, have taken the masks off their lives. In Galatians 4, 6 through 7, he says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then an heir through God. See, I'm not an imposter here at UPC. I'll never be an imposter because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has broken down the barriers that surround my sense of insecurity from his love. I'm alive in Christ, and he removes the unhelpful motivation. He puts his Holy Spirit within me that allows me to cry out, Abba, Father, thank you. I belong to you, and he does the same for you as well. Let's ask now our second question. How? We're asking each week, the who, who is the savior behind the sermon, but also how? That's who Jesus is. How does he invite us to live with this good news in the sermon? And the first thing is fairly simple. It's just to release our secrets to Jesus through confession. Sam was able to share his secret Sam was a fisherman who seemed to the warden to always be able to pull in a huge load of fish even when everybody else came off the water empty-handed. And the warden asked him about it again and again and again, and Sam kind of slyly said, oh, you know, I just get lucky. But one day, Sam said, you know what, I'm going to come clean, and he invited the warden to go out in his boat. Before the sun came up, they found themselves in a very secluded part of the lake, a cove, and the warden leaned back in the boat and just spread out his arms and I'm going to watch this guy and see what he really does. Sam opened up his tackle box. He pulled out a thin stick of dynamite and he lit the dynamite and he chucked it out and just as it hit the water, boom! The smoke cleared and a bunch of fish floated up to the surface. And the warden was stunned. He couldn't think what to say. He said, I'm going to throw the book at you. I'm going to find you. I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to put you in jail. And Sam calmly uh, opened up his tackle box and pulled out another stick of dynamite. He lit that stick and he tossed it into the warden's lap and said, are you just going to sit there watching or are you going to go fishing with me? (laughs) Boom! They just blow the whole thing up. That's what confession does for our secrets. There's great freedom in that. We don't have to hide. Jesus doesn't ask us to beat ourselves up or to punish ourselves or wallow in shame. He just says, no, just confess it. Just unmask your pain to Jesus. But there's another invitation here, and I want to spend a few minutes on this. See, the trouble is that our secrets begin to shape our lives. They they provide an unhelpful motivation. But the good news is our secrets begin to shape our lives, and they can be a very helpful motivation. In the last century, there was a psychologist named O. Hobart Maurer, who was the one who gave us the phrase, uh, you are your secrets. And he had a theory that suggested secrets could actually be transformational. They could be beneficial. He had this whole theory, and I don't know if I I buy the whole theory, but his idea is when you do something good, we have a tendency to advertise it, make sure everybody knows. And so the emotional after effect of that dissipates immediately because everybody knows. When we do something bad, we tend to hide it. But there, the emotional after effect begins to eat at us and, and gnaw at us. So he says it's a real negative dynamic when we advertise our good things and hide our bad things. And so he said, I wonder what happened if we just reverse that. And after making this insight, the next time he had a patient walk through his doors, and he, this, he said, let me give you an assignment. 
I want you to do two things this week. One, I want you to go and find two trusted friends who will hold your secret. I want you to confess the depth of your sin to them. Just tell them the whole truth, the nasty truth, and, 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 and get it off your chest. Make a clean breast of it. And then he says, the other thing I want you to do is I want you to take the money that you would use for our next session, and I want you to spend it doing something good for somebody. And the only stipulation is you can never tell anybody other than that person what you've done for them. Next week, the guy came back, and he was transformed. That's what Mara says. He had a new life in his step. I think it's something similar that Jesus is getting at here when he says, don't let the left hand know what your right hand is doing. If you're going to pray, go into an inner room. If you're going to fast, put that smile on your face that you have after you've had this great Red Mill hamburger, right? And then just hide it. Take your noble deeds and make them your secrets. Because what Jesus knows is that there's a power to secret love. And that secret love begins to become our life. A couple weeks ago, I was riding my bike on the Burke Gilman Trail. Sorry, three weeks in a row, bike story, but uh, it's, it's my life. And um, I'm, I'm riding along, and there's a blind person who stopped at the road. And I helped this blind, I got off my bike, helped this blind person cross the road. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, really being able to help this person. I had no idea how I would ever cope if I were really blind. This is wonderful. And then I caught myself. I was looking to the right and the left. And I heard this voice that said, George, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking. What are you looking for? Well, I just see all these cars stopped on either direction. I was just kind of looking at the cars. Why were you looking at the cars, George? Well, I was just wondering if there's anybody in those cars who knew me. I mean, maybe there was somebody from UPC who saw me (laughs) helping this blind person cross the road. And immediately there, I realized which audience I was performing for. In, In that moment, I realized this was not something I was doing for the blind man or out of love for my Savior. I was doing it for myself. And there's the trap. See how hard this is. And yet Jesus says, I want you to love me in secret. Like a child who's up in her room coloring a card for her mother, then will wake herself up early and bring a tray of scrambled eggs to her bedside and give her breakfast in bed. There's such a delight when we love in secret. That mom will take that card and she'll put it with her laptop and take it to work and she'll sneak a peek at it throughout the day because she has secret love for that child. There's a new motivation that Jesus says when we love in secret. This week, it, um, I had the privilege of taking our staff out to dinner downtown at Fair Start. The whole staff and spouses. I, I could do that because one of you sent a huge check anonymously. She said, I just love the staff and I want to bless them. Would you take them out to dinner? Here's the funding. And I sent a, a text message to that person that night uh, with a photograph. And they said, George, you know, the only people that are having more pleasure tonight than those who are at that dinner are the people who gave this gift. It's our, it's our joy to be able to do so. And that's the way it works. The more you know the Savior, the more you do stuff like this. But nobody has to see it except Jesus. The, maybe even the person you help doesn't know. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So here's what Jesus is saying. Unmask your pain and conceal your noble actions. Last month, the Seattle Times introduced us to a man named Bismarck Mensa from Ghana. He's an immigrant who has not been here very long, struggling with the same cultural uh, struggles that Hannah was struggling with, trying to uh, earn a living and provide for himself and his family. 
Bismarck Mensah has been named the Integrity in Action Person of the Year by Walmart because he works part-time in Walmart's parking lot just helping with the grocery carts. And um, he happened to see an envelope one day that was jammed, filled with money, and through the little window there, he could see it had cash, $20,000 in cash. Without a wink, he saw a car pulling out of the parking lot, and he began to shout, and he began to run. He chased his car down, and he gave the money to the couple that had been using that cart. And everyone wants to know, why would you do that? $20,000. Think of what it could have done for your life. Bismarck tells the story. He says, she was like, wow, tears are coming out. She took some money and tried to reward me. I said, no, no, I'm all right. Nobody was watching. He had no reason to do what he did. What was his secret? Well, it comes out later in the story. It turns out this manager is being interviewed. He said, I've gotten a lot of calls about Mensa, helping people. And uh, Mensa says, in the parking lot, people chat. They tell you your problems. You see their person is not happy. I tell them God is in control. Everything is okay. Somehow, he says, it helps the sad people to hear from a hopeful person. Out of love for God. Out of secret love for God. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we take a moment at your invitation now to quietly name our secrets before you. We don't have to release them to everybody, but we we do have to release them to you to be set free. Hear our confessions. And Lord Jesus, then invite us to a new experience of love. Help us to fall in love all over again. That we might be people who live with gratitude and hope and faith and and piety and prayer and giving money away and blessing people and listening to people and striving for justice and living with peace no matter what our circumstances because we know that you accept us and you love this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.